0: It comes from the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offsprings be. That New Testament passage was about the faith of Abraham. So I'm preaching on an Old Testament verse today. So we've had a New Testament reading. Um, I just want to give a little sort of uh, information about the rest of this series and I've got, I think we've got a slide here for, I've created an outline the way I'm going to approach every message going forward. For each of these hard sayings, this is how we're going to move through, and you'll see sort of my, my slides during the sermon will follow the structure. We'll identify the hard saying, in other words, the thing that is tough to hear or tough to read. We'll hear the critique, in other words, from skeptics or... Uh, people who have a really hard time with the particular passage. I'll give the context because context is king and then move to sort of an answer to the critique or a counter critique and then ultimately give some application. I don't want it to be sort of like a Sunday school class or like a theological lecture. I'm going to try to make this and I'm going to try to do this this morning, uh, Christ-centered and Christ-focused and focusing on some application. So let's move to the very first um, The hard saying for today, we're talking about the binding of Isaac. God commanding Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. The verse is a little lengthy, we're gonna put up on the screen, but it's just so much text. I'm gonna read the passage to your hearing, okay? This is Genesis 22, 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, "Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you." And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Just create a mental picture of that that for a minute. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Man, this is the word of God. In his book, Under the Banner of Heaven, John Krakauer, let me back up for a minute. Let's move to point two here. Now I'm unpacking. I'm doing this for the first time. The skeptics critique, okay? God, the divine child abuser, that's the critique. Let me unpack it. John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven, begins by telling the chilling story of a Utah man who killed his sister-in-law and her 15-month-old daughter, his niece, at God's command, supposedly. The murderer claimed that he had a handwritten revelation From God that prompted his action and after his arrest he said you'd think I have committed a crime of homicide but I have not I was doing the will of God which is not a crime as he was about to kill his 15-month-old niece he told her I'm not sure what this is about but apparently it's God's will that you leave this world perhaps we can talk about it later He described his actions saying, it was like someone had taken me by the hand that day and led me comfortably through everything that happened. These lives were to be taken and I was the one who was supposed to do it. And if God wants something to be done, it will be done. You don't want to offend him by refusing to do his work. A majority... Of non Christian authors I've read, treat Abraham's sacrifice as the irrational product of blind faith. And they see faith as one of the greatest causes of religious violence. And they believe that someone like this man in Utah, this murderer, was simply acting like Abraham, obeying God's commands and orders. And maybe some of you have had the same thought. Why would a loving God ask Abraham to do something so heinous, so cruel, so disturbing as sacrifice his son? What kind of benevolent God, one might ask, would do such a thing? It seems out of step with God's loving character, doesn't it? Even more troubling is the dangerous implications of people who believe That heinous acts are acceptable if they believe they're carrying out God's commands. And all you have to do is think about in the recent past, suicide bombings. I mean, these are people who think they're doing God's will, that God has commanded them to take the life of unbelievers or infidels or their enemies. So it's not some abstract theory in history. It happens today among some religious people. We might wanna ask, could God ask or demand something like that from us, modern Christians? And how would we know if God was asking us to do something like that? What if they or we misunderstood? So it's not irrelevant. It's not an abstract idea, something we should think about. This is the famous atheist Richard Dawkins version of the story in Genesis 2. Okay, brace yourself, right? God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put fire upon it, and thrust Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking after all. Tempting Abraham and trying his faith. A modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such a psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders." End quote. On the surface, it seems like a very scathing critique, and not an unsophisticated one. But it's totally devoid of any real context. Which brings me to number three. The context. And we learned in seminary, context is king. And the context here is Abraham's faith. So let me try to get God off the hook, okay? The context is not killing, but the testing of Abraham's faith And it's good for us to know that the Bible is filled with tests of people's faith, from Genesis to Revelation. God tests the faith of his people. Think of Adam and Eve. I mean, being placed in the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, after all, a test. God asked them to obey his words and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And think of your own life for a moment. All of the times that God has tested your faith. Now, not all tests are good. Some tests can be a trap. Right? If Adam and Eve only had one tree to eat from and there was no other options, then God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have been a trap. They would have had no choice but to eat. But of course, that is not the situation. God gave them the freedom to eat of all of the trees of the garden. And it was only that one tree that God asked them to refrain and abstain from. Here's an application for us, okay? Tests are always about trusting God. Tests force us to trust God in radical new ways. Is there a slide for that? Maybe not. So I'll repeat it. Tests are about trusting God. God tests our faith as a way to force us, yes, force us because we are wayward and sinful creatures to trust him, to place our trust in him, often in radical new ways in ways that we never have before. And at this moment, no doubt God is testing your faith. You don't, I don't, this is not like a word of prophecy. I just, pretty sure I know people, right? We're all going through something. God is testing every one of us. It might be in your marriage. It might be in an area of your career or finances. It might be a health issue or an unbelieving child or family member. But no doubt God is testing Your faith, every trial works in that way also. It unites us in solidarity with our suffering Savior Jesus and gives us a kind of communion with him through our suffering. But it also refines and strengthens and tests your faith because through every trial, the only way to get through any trial is to rely on and lean on God. So you don't have to raise your hands. I know that God is testing your faith right now. And maybe it's a a point of low testing, and maybe it's a point of high testing, depending on who you are or your situation. But in the garden, the serpent tests Adam and Eve to eat of that other tree, but his test is a trap. They give in and fail, but God promises that a human being will one day come who will pass the test and defeat the serpent. And as that story moves on to another couple, Abraham and Sarah, God tests them as well. And the first test is that God comes to Abraham and says, get up from the only place you've ever known, Ur of the Chaldees, which is in southern Mesopotamia. And he says, I want to take you out of the place that you've always known to a place that I will show you. Now, for modern people, this is lost on us because we move all the time. We transfer to different cities for work, for jobs. It's something that modern people, especially in the Western world, do all the time. But in the ancient world, to leave your tribe, your village, your community, the place that you have known your whole life is sort of a death sentence. This is why for a lot of people, when someone had committed a heinous crime in a tribal community, exile was almost worse than death. And so to send someone out from the kin and family and kindred and tribe they knew and loved meant certain death because you didn't have the protection, you didn't have all of these things. So the idea that God comes to Abraham and says, get up from the place that you know, is not saying, hey, it's, it's 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 a transfer. You know, it's lost on us because we just don't appreciate that. And so for Abraham to say, okay, was an incredible test of his faith to trust God And to believe in God's promise to take him to a new place. So they obey and pass that test. But then through Abraham and Sarah's journeys, Abraham fails the test. Abraham lies to protect himself. He says that Sarah was his sister. He's afraid that, you know, a local king is going to kill him to steal his beautiful bride. He fails that test. And then Sarah and Abraham fail another test. They scheme to get a son their own way by taking advantage of one of their servants, Hagar. And you may know the story. From that union was born Ishmael, who was not the child of the promise. They definitely failed that test. But God does not give up on Abraham. He gives him one more final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty, God asks Abraham to go up on a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. And it's hard to imagine a more intense test than that. Everything Abraham had ever hoped for was tied up in this son of promise. I remember that Abraham and Sarah waited for years. They were old after Isaac had been born. They had been barren, a couple without children, for close to 100 years. But in the place God tells him to go, there is a hint of what God is really after. Not Isaac, but Abraham's faith and trust. And I would put forward to each one of us that this is what God is really after with each one of us. That it's the trial itself, is, it's not really about the trial. The test is not about the test. It's about what God is really after. Are we going to believe Him? Are we going to trust in Him? Are we going to believe God's promises to us or our own hearts, which are deceitful? Are we going to believe God? Or are we going to believe the world? We're we going to believe the promises of God, every every test, every trial that you experience is ultimately this is what lies behind it. God cared about Abraham's faith and the name of the place that God sends Abraham to is called Moriah which means provision or the Lord will provide and I just have to believe that somewhere in Abraham's heart he's got to be thinking this is a test. There is no way that God is going to require my son. Don't know this for sure, but the name of the place is God saying, I'm gonna provide a sacrifice. When I was in my teenage years on the streets of Los Angeles and had got jumped into a street gang, there was a test that would often happen. It was maybe a kind of hazing. A new young recruit, I was about 14, we'd be hanging out Doing, you know, doing the things we did in our neighborhood, all the members of the gang. And somebody bigger and older would pop up and challenge you to a fight. And I'd seen other guys respond to this and get pummeled really bad. And so it was scary, but often um, it was just a test to see if you were willing, because as you encountered other gang members or other rivals, you had to be ready to fight, And so they didn't want an encounter with a rival gang to be the first time you actually confronted somebody who might be bigger or stronger than you, so we would challenge each other. And the first few months that that I had gotten into the gang, I knew that that was coming, and I didn't know for sure, but I thought that this is one test I cannot fail. And I remember having somebody a lot bigger and older than me, so when you're 14, I have a 20-year-old who's a lot bigger than you and a little older and stronger challenge you to a fight. It's kind of scary. And I remember it happened a couple times and, um, you know, there's 15 or 20 guys around and one of them pops up, challenges you to a fight. And I remember thinking to myself, I can't fail this test. And if I get pummeled, I get, you know, beat to a pulp. It's just the way it's gotta be. And I stood up and I said, all right, you know, let's go. And they said, well, we just wanted to see if you were, if you're willing. Um, And, you know, of course, you know, they they shake your hands. They give you a hug because, you know, we used to say, wow, you're down. You're down for whatever's going to happen. And, of course, I was, you know. But there was something inside of me that sort of knew that they they didn't want to see me beat to a pulp. They just, it was a test. And when other new guys would get into the gang, as I got older, I would just tell them. I couldn't guarantee them that if it happened, they wouldn't actually have to fight. But I would just tell them. Just trust me, whatever you do, don't we used to use the word punk out. Don't punk out. Well, Abraham has got a hunch, I believe, that something, there's something more than this command to offer Isaac. He's got the name of this place that says the Lord will provide. He knows that he has failed other tests in the past, and he's learned a little bit of something about the kind of God he's serving. And I think inside he knows that God is not going to allow this son of his to die because he believes God's promise and he has faith that this child is the child of promise in which God said, all the nations of the world will be blessed in this seed of yours, this offspring. In fact, when Isaac asks his father, uh, here's the wood in the altar, but uh, where's the sacrifice? I heard someone say a joke one time that um, <clears throat> um, God said to Isaac, the Lord told me to offer you as a burnt offering. And Isaac said, and what did you say? <laughs> but you can imagine what's going on in the back of this young teenager's mind as his father takes him up to this place of sacrifice. Abraham responds, God will provide, which is the name of the place, Mount Moriah, which ultimately was the area in which Mount Zion and the Jerusalem temple was built. In the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitution animal in the place of his son. Now at this moment, light bulbs should be going off in your head. God provides a substitution. Story of Abraham and his one and only son is a foreshadow of something. And it prefigures and foreshadows God the Father's offering of the redemptive sacrifice, the second Isaac, the father's one and only son. Look at John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Sounds a whole lot like Genesis 22, doesn't it? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In the mind of God, God knows what is coming in 18 centuries after Abraham. And God's intimate relationship with his friend Abraham, there is something that he wants to invite Abraham in to feel, even if he can only feel it just a little bit, which is the pain that the father will one day experience in offering his only son. And this brings us to point number four, our answer to the critique. That God isn't like the other gods, and critics like Richard Dawkins or whoever they are who look at a text like this and, and respond with disgust, and I would argue that there are Christians nowadays who read this also and feel a sense of disgust. So it's not just unbelievers. That maybe some of you have read this and felt you know, disturbed at it. But one of the things that they are unable to appreciate is what this story is trying to tell us about the very nature of God and God's work of redemption on the cross. There are other things it's telling us also. So for the early community who received this story, the Exodus community of early Hebrews leaving Egypt, one of the things they would have learned about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that he is not like the other gods who do command human sacrifice. In fact, one of the things that seems to be a common thread throughout almost all ancient nationalistic or tribal religions is that their deity requires human blood. Uh, It is something found in almost all civilizations, ancient civilizations in the world on every continent, which is the worship of gods with human sacrifice. And so, the message, the sort of neon sign message for the reception, the, 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 the community that received, the, the early like, reception community of this story is that, oh, our God is not like the other gods. He doesn't require us to offer our children in sacrifice. Again, it's something for us in the 21st century, we may think, okay, but for people in those days, it would have been a big deal that God is not like the gods of the nations He doesn't require us to sacrifice our children. He doesn't require us to do heinous things to satisfy him. And the other point is this, that God wants a real relationship with his people. And he desires them to place their faith and trust in him, even in the face of challenging circumstances. Again, this is something that skeptics are not unable to To appreciate because all they see is a cruel test, but we see God's love and mercy, don't we? They see a bully, but we see a substitutionary sacrifice God's self sacrifice in Christ, who willingly went to the cross. And so their criticism is divorced from context and a larger redemptive story. It's really a terrible. It's terrible biblical scholarship. The story of Abraham offering Isaac, the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, 1 through 14, is part of a, so think of concentric circles, a larger story of God testing Abraham's faith, which is part of an even larger story of God's redemptive work and flow through history that one day he himself will offer his only son. But that son goes willingly that son is in agreement with the father and the spirit to offer himself as a sacrifice he is not forced it is not against his will it is not cosmic child abuse as some would argue the son out of his love for us willingly sacrifices himself and so here's the application Abraham's faith in surrendering Isaac points us to Jesus. You have to have the larger story, the larger framework of the redemptive story. When Jesus was faced with the ultimate test, he prayed in the garden, Father, if it's possible, let this test pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the test passer. Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. Obedience and surrender to the wisdom of God. Jesus offers his own life as a sacrifice to cover all of the failed tests of us, his people. Then and now. Jesus' passing of his tests and his atoning sacrifice covers all of our failed tests. if We can put it that way. So Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. Now, does that mean everything will be great in our lives? No. We'll each face tests every single day, and we do, don't we? Each of us have to take up our crosses. Every single day, we have to take up our cross. There is a test for us every single day. Every single day you're alive, there's some test. And some of them you pass, and some of them you fail. But God, through every test, is forcing us to trust him in radical new ways, isn't he? Every test from God is not a trap, but an opportunity. God's tests are an opportunity for us. And this is why James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 1 and 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How is that gonna happen? Through your daily tests. God is testing you for a purpose and for a reason. He's sanctifying you. He's conforming you more and more to to the likeness and image of Jesus the one who passed all the tests, because the Spirit is now at work in us, strengthening us, sanctifying us, redeeming us, transforming us, and uniting us to God by faith as we trust him through every test and through every trial. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father. We thank you, O God, that through the Spirit, you have given us eyes to see this story in its larger context, which is the faith of Abraham, as a model for us to copy in trusting and believing. We know, O God, that you do not command us to take innocent life. We know that, O God. We look to your word. We don't rely on spurious interpretations of voices in our head or from other people. We look to your holy word. And we know what your word says to protect the innocent, to love our neighbor, to give ourselves in service and in protection of other people. Father, may our hearts fully rely and trust in you as we endure every test. Some tests we've been through, the tests we're in right now, and those that are yet to come. We can't do it on our own, but through your spirit's empowering and enabling, oh God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.